0: Turn with me to Hosea chapter 1 as we continue to work through the book of Hosea. We started with that last week, so we're just going to be looking at verses 2 through 9 today, talking about this prophet and his life and his work. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you today, we come to you in the midst of a dying world. It is dying because of sin and death, those things that you have come to deliver us, your people, from. And so in many ways, because of your work, we are the sign of life. In a dying world. Lord we pray. That as we live. Our lives in this world. That you would help us. To shine a light. As we just read. From the catechism. That those good works. That we do. By by them our neighbors. May be one to you. Lord we pray that very thing. That our neighbors, not only those that live in close proximity to us, but those that we share this community with, would see the good works of the people of Redeemer Community Church, but not only this church, but all of your people here in Murray, Kentucky. And that your people that live in this town would be fed weekly as they meet together to worship you, That they would not be fed a diet of self-affirmation, of idolatry, of self-deification, but that they would be fed a diet of the gospel, of your truth, that they would hear your name proclaimed, that they would remember the one in whom they have peace and rest, the one in whom they have justification and salvation the one in whom they are called ambassadors. So Lord, as we, your people here at Redeemer Community Church gather together today, we pray that as we open your word, that you would make it efficacious to that end. That we would not not only bring more and more glory to your name, so that you might receive glory, but also so that the world will know that you are God. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as I read through Hosea chapter one again, I've been reading it over and over honestly because of some of the difficulty of it, not uh, interpretation Or anything like that, just, it's just a hard, hard story. It made me think of times in my life, and I'm sure you've had times in your own life where you've had something similar, where you've been asked to do something that is going to be difficult, but not only difficult, but time consuming, and also you know that it's probably not going to end the way that everyone wants it to. You know, it's probably going to end in failure. It's a hard sort of thing to be asked to do, right? Sometimes we call tasks like this a Sisyphean task, which is a fun big word to throw around. But it has to do with a character in Greek mythology by the name of Sisyphus, which is also a fun word to say and read, especially if you're dyslexic like me. Sisyphus was punished for trying to trick Zeus, And his punishment was to push a giant stone up a hill, only to watch that stone roll back down to the bottom and have to start all over again for all eternity. We've all had those kinds of things in life. Many times they are mundane and seemingly unimportant, compounding the fact that we've been asked to do them in our frustration. What does this have to do with Hosea? Well, for Hosea, he was asked to do something that was not only doomed to failure, it also wasn't a mundane task. It was something that was ordained by God and supposed to be very good. Hosea was asked to marry a woman, which should be a good thing. But the woman that he was asked to marry was a prostitute. Not only that, he was asked to have children with her, even though by all accounts, this wasn't going to end well. And he was asked to do this so that Israel, this nation, could be taught about their own sins against a heavenly father. This one man was asked to do that thing. To make matters more difficult, Hosea was given names for his children too. He wasn't allowed to name his own children, but he was given names for them. And those names would constantly remind him not only of Israel's national sin, but also of his marriage And the difficulties therein. This is a hard passage. Again, not because of any interpretive difficulties, but because it just is so harsh to us. We can't even imagine something like this being asked of someone, especially by God Himself. It doesn't seem like something God would command a prophet to do, and we wrestle with that, which is a good kind of wrestling. Yet when it comes to the incalculable mercy we are shown in the sacrifice of Christ, we hardly bat an eye. And that's where we're at today. As we move through this passage, we'll examine each one of the children. We'll use those as our three points that are born to Hosea and Gomer, and we'll see how they are pictures of the sin in God's people and also the redeeming love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And those points are the child named Jezreel, the child named No Mercy, and the child named Not My People. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Hosea 1, 2 through 9. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go. "...take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord." So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, "...call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel." And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I've read that silently this whole week, and reading it out loud, it had that much more effect to it. Remember last week we introduced this book, talked about the historical context of it. As we continue today, we're going to see more of Israel's history coming to bear on the text and coming forward so that we can deal with it, understanding what's going on in Hosea's really long-term context. This is something that's been building over hundreds of years even. Because their history not only shaped their political landscape, but it also shaped their relationship with God. Very important. Their relationship with God comes to full view here, and it's viewed really through the people in Hosea's family, these five individuals, Hosea, his wife, and their three children. As the bulk of our time will be spent with Hosea's children, I want to briefly talk about the relationship with his wife, Gomer, which is really the, kind of the catalyst for this whole thing, and we'll be dealing more specifically with it in chapter 3. As we look ahead, chapter 3 is just a handful of verses which deals specifically with that relationship. I want to talk about this because it's really difficult for us to perceive and understand God's request of Hosea. the Lord, verse 2, When the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he took Gomer. And to put aside any interpretive difficulties, yes, Domer was indeed a prostitute. There's no way to soften the truth here, though some commentators, particularly more modern commentators, attempt to do that. And what is the reason that's given that Hosea was to marry her? For the land commits great whoredom without forsaking the Lord. Remember last week we talked about the sins of Jeroboam, the first Jeroboam. Building altars to a false god and naming naming them, this is the god that has uh, delivered you from Egypt, right? He named these golden calves, the god that has delivered them out of Egypt. And he built these calves in the name of the one true god. Like Hosea's wife, loving other men while being married, Israel had repeatedly whored after other gods. While wanting all the benefits of a committed relationship with God, they wanted to have these other gods also. Gomer's adultery showed Israel's adultery slash idolatry against her husband, the Lord. Though Hosea felt the brunt of this in a very real way, I can't even fathom, we have no better picture of the sin of idolatry and just because we don't have golden calves at appointed worship centers here in America, don't think that the sin of idolatry is dead today. It's alive and well. Hosea serves as a wake up call for us and should help us to wrestle with our own personal sin and the sins, I think, of the church as a whole as well. That brings me to the first point, the child named Jezreel. Look at verses three through five with me again. So he went to, and took Gomer, The daughter of Diblaim and she conceived and bore him a son and the Lord said to him call his name Jezreel for just in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. There's really enough here, as I started reading, I got caught here for several hours studying these three verses because there's enough here really to just study the rest of the summer, the historical context, these words Jezreel and Jehu and all of these things, but of course we have just a few more minutes. and So I commend to you 2 Kings 9 and 10 for your personal study, as I'll only be summarizing here what it means when God says the blood of Jezreel and why Jehu had to be dealt with. But I strongly encourage you to read that, 2 Kings 9 and 10. First thing to notice here, notice that she conceived and bore him a son, language that is going to be absent from the next two children, that she just simply conceived and bore children as opposed to bearing him a son. It's not that Gomer didn't have two more children, it's just they probably weren't Hosea's. And then the name Jezreel, which is we're reading through Old Testament books, especially like we've been going through Judges and uh, in Sunday school. And we went through Isaiah and now in Hosea, we've come across lots of fun names. And so a name like Jezreel really doesn't bother us because we're used to hearing names that don't really make a whole lot of sense to our English ears. Right. But if you were an Israelite and you heard that a child was named Jezreel, You would have thought that was crazy. All these names seem strange to us, but the name Jezreel to the Israelite would have been an ominous one. Imagine a young pastor starting his ministry, he and his wife having their first child together and choosing to name that child Jonestown. You know, Jonestown is the place where Jim Jones, the cult leader, who murdered nearly a thousand people by having them commit suicide. Imagine having little Jonestown come to church with his cute little clothes on and having to explain to everyone what his name means and having to answer the question, Why would you name your kid Jonestown? Jezreel would have had that kind of feel to it. Jezreel was the place, we've been going through the book of Judges, some of you may remember that Gideon destroyed the Midianite army, which is a great victory for Israel, something that they would have been, it would have been storied for many years and years to come. Remember the story of the pots and the torches and the trumpets and 300 men took out thousands of men, which is pretty incredible. But later, Jezreel is going to take on a bit of a different tone. This is the site where Jehu would assassinate the kings of Israel and Judah, the king's grandmother, Jezebel, all of their children and grandchildren, and all the prophets of Baal. Oddly enough, the Lord appointed Jehu to be king and commanded him to strike down the house of Ahab. But he went a little bit over the top, like a religious fanatic, overzealous about a good thing. And to top off all of his hypocrisy, after he slaughtered the prophets of Baal, he made an offering to Baal, I guess to make sure all of his bases were covered. On top of that, he left, golden, he left the golden calves that Jehoram set up because while Baal was bad, golden cow babies were okay to worship as far as he was concerned. And God remembered all of this. We don't have a God who forgets things, who forgets these slights, and I use the word slights kind of sarcastically, because in God's eye, idolatry is a horrible abomination to him. He gave Jehu some blessing by following the commandment to take out Ahab's family, that he would ultimately bring judgment upon Israel for the wanton slaughter and the continued idolatry of Jehu. And where did all of this massacre and treachery take place? In the little town of Jezreel. Also the name of Hosea's first son. Imagine calling him by name, being dad or being mom and calling him by name every day. Imagine reliving that day when God told you, "Name him Jezreel, because I'm going to punish Jerusalem because of Jezreel." letting the sin of those past kings sink in and how that sin is now something that you were having to deal with on a very real basis. Your whole family is a picture of the Lord's hatred for that sin. This all looked forward to the day when God would break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel, which is indeed what would happen when Assyria invaded. They cut off a portion of of Israel in the valley of Jezreel, sealing their defeat and eventual exile, we are moving toward this redemptive picture here, I promise. as we go through the book of Hosea, we're going to see this bright light turn on, especially as you look at verses 10 and eleven in verse one of chapter two. What we're going to go over next week, so I promise you there's some light at the end of this tunnel. But it's important for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to understand the gravity of our sin. We in no way are responsible for the sins of our ancestors as God deals with each individual according to their own merit. And thankfully, for those of us who are in Christ, he deals with us according to the merit of Jesus Christ. Thankfully. Yet I think sometimes the view of our own sin is very short-sighted. All the atrocities of the past continually stacked and compounded like stacking gasoline-soaked rags. Eventually, all of that's going to catch fire, and it's going to be an explosion. In the name of Jezreel, there's the corporate sins of a people who do not deserve mercy at all. And that's what exactly what we see. They weren't going to get it. That brings us to... The second point, the child named No Mercy. Look with me again at verse six. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to call, and the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. So again, she had a daughter. We're not giving, given any indication here that it's Hosea's child and her name in the hebrew was going to be lo ruhamah which literally means no mercy the verb here is very similar to the one that is used in isaiah 49:15 when the prophet asks a rhetorical question of the people he says can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion So in essence here, this daughter is named no mercy, like the kind of treatment a mother would have to give to a child by refusing to nurse it. That's what's meant here. God says, I will have no mercy on the house of Israel. As he had finally had enough of them and was finished with them. And it would seem historically true as Assyria again would eventually destroy the northern kingdom. And the tribes therein are eventually called the Lost Tribes of Israel. we have said that many times. Remember, this isn't an arbitrary decision of the Lord. This is one that's based upon the sins of the people. If we start at all to think, well, I don't understand why God would do something like that," that. That question inherently denotes the fact that we don't understand our own sin and the gravity of it. They had continually committed the sin of idolatry, even while giving blessing upon blessing, they never turned from that sin. It wasn't as if they were coerced or oppressed. Instead, they reveled in their idolatry, keeping it sacred rather than calling it what it was. Reading this passage makes me think of Jesus' words to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 in a famous verse, Jesus' Dealing with the Pharisees, much like God is dealing with Israel here. And he says, finally, just overcome with compassion. Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. The prophet Jeremiah would one day have a similar task as Hosea when it came to God's lack of mercy toward Judah. Jeremiah wrote these words. Turn with me to Jeremiah 18 so we can see these together. Jeremiah 18. Verses... Five through 10. Just a real fast context here. Jeremiah is the prophet that was sent to Babylon or sent to Judah about Babylon and even ministered some in exile. And here in 18, he has very similar words to what we're reading in Hosea 1. Starting at verse 5, reading through verse 10. Jeremiah 18. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel... Can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. I love this part, verse 7. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I I intended to do to it. And that if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. It brings up some interesting questions, right? Well, is God sovereign? Yes. Does God change? No. Can God choose to use repentance or lack thereof? In order to show mercy or bring justice? Yes, he can. Remember Jonah and Nineveh. Forty days and they'll be destroyed, God said to the prophet Jonah. And Nineveh repented and they weren't destroyed. Yet we know history. We know that Israel was conquered They never turned from their sin and to God. Instead, they dug their heels into comfort of their idols and did so to their doom. But what about Judah? Back in Hosea verse or chapter one, look at verse seven. What about Judah? But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by Horsemen. God intends to have mercy on Judah but not in a military way we know this because Judah was also conquered they will be completely conquered never really fully recovering from the conquest of Babylon yet God didn't have military plans concerning his people he planned instead to send his only son to redeem his people not by power not by might, but by his spirit alone, would he bring the hearts of his people to repentance so that they would turn again and follow him. And this would happen ultimately through the great son of Judah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Understand, brothers and sisters, Hosea longed for the day of Jesus. As we're going to see as we move through this book, he longed, he longed for the day when his daughter's name Would be redeemed, and his people would be delivered finally, even from themselves. But that wouldn't come out that wouldn't come without a lot of heartache first. That brings me to the final point a child named Not My People. Look with me at verses eight and nine. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name Not My People. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Again, Gomer has another son, probably not Hosea's. This son was named Lo-am-I, or not my people. Why? As the Lord says, because you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is tough. Imagine looking at one of your children, saying, you're not my child. This is tough. By the time we get to Hosea's time in the Bible, we've had lots of water under the bridge. There's been lots of stories, right? This, this should be really tough for the one who's reading through the Scriptures. We've read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what did he tell each one of them? God said to them, I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Over and over, those are the covenantal promises given to Israel. They were taken to Egypt, where they were eventually put into slavery, and God rescued them, saying, I will be your God, and you shall be my people. To David, he promised him the same thing, saying that there would always be a king on his throne. Yet now, that promise seems to be turned on its head. God saw the adultery, the whoredom, of his people and was sick of it. He gave them a new name. Not my people. And for them, he was now to be referred as not my God. When I read verse 9, it made me think of the things that I hear time to time concerning people who maybe used to attend church, used to claim to be a Christian. The things that we say, right? That They aren't walking with the Lord right now or they just need to be in church. We say things like that. It made me think of this child's name, it made me think about my own walk, how sometimes I can really feel these words, not my God, not my people. So I look at my own life, the life of others who are maybe wayward, even our country's history as well, pairing these things with verse nine you can start to see this great chasm that exists between a God who abhors evil and a people who only ever do evil. Imagine the chasm that must have existed between Hosea and his wife even. And the great difficulty it would have taken to repair, to raise the family together. I just can't even imagine. That kind of betrayal... Leaves lasting pain, lasting heartache. And every time Israel turned to another God, every time we do, the chasm would only grow greater and greater, seemingly irreparable, were it not for Jesus. The great separation between God and His people couldn't be crossed by the goodness of that people, because they're not good. We're not good. We can't read things like this and ever come to the conclusion, well, that's them, that's not me. It's me. It's you. We're not good. We were dead in our sins. We couldn't even see the blessings of God outside of Christ if we wanted to. We couldn't hear His pleas of compassion until Jesus came. Until the Spirit of God made those people, made us. Alive in Jesus Christ. Though Hosea had a child named no mercy. But God being rich in mercy. Because of his great love which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our whoredom. Made us alive together in Christ Jesus our Lord. Though he had a child named not my people. Jesus came to save his people. From their sins. Brothers and sisters in Christ, because of Jesus, there is no chasm of betrayal. There's no separation. In fact, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so then what should we do when we see these things in our heart? Repent. Turn from your idolatry. Turn to God. Repent of your idolatry. Turn to Jesus He hasn't stopped being faithful, even though we're not always faithful to Him. And if you're feeling a separation from God, as sometimes we do, right? Well, I don't feel all that close to God right now. It's all on your end. It's not on His. It's not really there. God is as near to you as He can possibly be because the Spirit of God lives in you. Turn from your wicked ways and turn to Him. Even in our idolatry, we are forgiven, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thanks be to God. For the unbeliever here, the chasm still exists for you. This ever widening chasm between a God who hates evil and a person or a people who always only ever commit it. Why might you ask again? Imagine the separation that exists between this husband and this wife here in this story. That unfaithfulness, how much more exists between a God and the people who live in sin and in death. And you cannot close the gap on your own. You need help, not just help. You need someone to do the whole thing. And that comes from Jesus. Only he can make that right. Call upon the name of Jesus today and be saved. Be restored in relationship to God and have peace in Christ today. In conclusion, While many parts of this book, like the description of Hosea's family, are difficult, one thing remains, Hosea teaches us about Jesus. So let us not only find hope and comfort for our souls in it, but let us offer that clear hope, the gospel of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world who needs it. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, We read these words of the prophet. These words that you were there. These words that you gave to the prophet. Lord, help us not only to see the gravity of our sin, but Lord, to understand that it has been removed as far as the east is from the west. It is not something that continues to plague us. It is not something that continues to separate us from you. But in fact, you have defeated it for all time. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to turn to you. And Lord, help us to be messengers of that same truth. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. This time, please stand with me as we sing our response to God's word.